Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we ask if Scotland's independence movement will snatch victory in September's referendum. And we hear from Ukraine what, if any, impact last week's deal in Geneva is having on the ground. But we start in Brazil, where with only weeks to go to the start of the World Cup on June 12th, stadiums remain unfinished, costs have spiralled, and metro, hotel and airport workers are threatening to go on strike. The decision to host the World Cup in Brazil and to hold the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro came when Brazil was emerging as an economic powerhouse and rapid economic growth helped to lift tens of millions out of poverty. Now that economic growth is declining and with it the popularity of President Dilma Rousseff who faces an election on October the 5th. So should the President welcome the World Cup or fear it? To find out, I'm joined from Sao Paulo by our correspondent, Tom Hennigan, and here in Dublin by Ken Early of Second Captains, who's also an Irish Times columnist. Tom, how far behind are the preparations? Uh, well, there's still, considering we're just about 50 days to go to kickoff, we're still seeing um, three stadiums to be delivered. So there's work going on, um, including on where the opening game is going to be on, on June the 12th. Uh, the airports, two of the main uh, international airports in the country still have work going on on them, um, and they're not going to be ready until the middle of next month. And several cities, including where I am in Sao Paulo, there's a lot of the infrastructure projects um, to help um, get fans around the cities that were promised for the World Cup. They're still ongoing. And, you know, here in Sao Paulo and in several other cities around Brazil, we've just been told they're not going to be ready. So anyone who needs to get to one of the main airports in Sao Paulo and wants to do that on public transport, they were promised that they'd have a monorail that would be able to whisk them in. Um, but if you drive by the airport at the moment, there's just huge concrete columns with no tracks or anything laid on them, and they're, that's not going to be ready in time for the World Cup. So there's work ongoing that they're rushing to finish, but there's also just a lot of work that they're saying it's just not going to be ready in time. And, and the government has redefined that. And having promised it for the World Cup, they now said, no, no, that was work that was inspired by the World Cup, but it would be part of the legacy. Uh, but it won't be ready for fans when they arrive in Brazil. Tom, during last year's Confederations Cup, which was a kind of a dress rehearsal for the World Cup, hundreds of thousands of Brazilians took to the streets and they were demonstrating, sometimes violently. Is this something that we can res- expect a repeat of this time around? That's the $6 million question in Brazil at the moment. Um, I think the government are very nervous about it. Uh, there's a very noticeable campaign to try and swing public opinion behind the World Cup, even saying, look, there's been a lot of problems, but you know, let's just put our best face forward when the world's looking at us um, for the month of the actual tournament. Um, and that is because there will be protests, um, many groups have organized uh, protests in the run-up and said that they will hold demonstrations um, on match days in cities. So that is definitely going to happen. What the government is afraid of is, will those demonstrations be able to snowball in a way that similar small demonstrations last year at the Confederations Cup became these mass demonstrations that for about two weeks had the political class in Brazil absolutely terrified. And they were quite worried that they were seeing the first days of a revolution against the political class here. And that didn't materialize. Um, A lot of the promises that the politicians made to try and calm people down last year have not been delivered. Um, But it's difficult to say because there was such a um, kind of uh, coming together of different factors last year, including over-aggressive police violence against small demonstrations that brought out um, much larger uh, numbers of people onto the streets in disgust at the police. I'm sure the government are saying to the police this time around, look, none of that again, because you saw what happened last time. And then 
There is also um, a expectation in Brazil that this is going to be a great party. Uh, Brazilians are mad about football. The Confederations Cup wasn't seen as a very important tournament to the World Cup is. So, you know, will that inhibit people coming out and demonstrating waits to be seen? But it's definitely something that the politicians are watching, but no one can really say for certain whether they're going to be as dramatic as the protests of last year. Ken Early, uh, countries fight very hard to host the World Cup. Does it do them any good? Hmm, depends. Uh, it's certainly what they're getting from it is not necessarily what uh, FIFA have been putting about that they're going to get from it. Um, when I listen to what Tom is saying about the, the build-up and the questions that you've been asking about the build-up to the World Cup in Brazil, what strikes you is how similar or how many of the same themes were raised before the last World Cup in South Africa, which is, which is in many respects quite like Brazil, a developing country with big economic inequality. Um, and the difference, there are a couple of differences, though. I think the South Africans were a lot more naive about what they were getting into than the Brazilians are. Maybe the Brazilians have learned from the experience of South Africa. What happens with uh, the FIFA World Cup, as as we should call it, the FIFA World Cup is not really anything to do with the host country. The host country pays for this thing. It's a, it's a, a kind of a self-contained parasitical uh, organization which comes, implants itself in the host country for the duration of the tournament, uh, takes all the revenues, allows the host country to pay all the bills and goes home to Zurich with a large tax-free surplus. Um, what does the host country get out of this? Economically, uh, not a lot. I think the number of tourists to South Africa actually fell because people thought, well, do I want to go to South Africa and could be caught in the middle of all these um, tourists going for the World Cup and people are going to be jacking up prices and maybe I'll go somewhere else. They actually had, had a fall in the number of tourists uh, the year that they hosted the World Cup. Um, I remember being in South Africa three years before the World Cup was, was, was uh, on there. And... Uh, being in a township called Imazamayetu, close to Cape Town, and asking people there what they thought was going to happen when the World Cup was there. And everybody was very excited. Uh, and the idea that they, they had ideas like, uh, you know, I'm going to open a, a little guest house here uh, in the township, you know, and maybe some Swedish fans will come and stay here in Imazamayetu. Or uh, I'm going to open a small restaurant near the stadium. There was a big stadium in, in Cape Town, which caused a bit of a scandal. It's a huge stadium. Cape Town already has a stadium. Um, but they had to build this. Obviously, FIFA, you know, FIFA, FIFA self-importance requires the building of new stadiums, uh, 12 in the case of Brazil. So they built this huge new stadium. Uh, and, and the idea was that I will, I will open a small restaurant, you know, like a, a, a street-side stall, you know, and sell food to the, to the crowds. And this was honestly a dream that this one guy had. His name was Elvis, an easy name to remember. And I remember thinking, you know, that nobody here realizes what this is going to be like. The, the stadium itself is guarded, almost like it was, a, a, you know, an alien spaceship. You know, it's, it's got a perimeter fence. Nobody is allowed near it. It's a commercially uh, guarded zone. Only FIFA commercial partners are allowed to operate there. There's certainly not going to be any street food. There's not so going to be anything for you. for the local economy, it's not going to really do anything much. No, nothing. I mean, you know, I'm sure some hotels are going to do well. Uh, you know, there are going to be some people going, but yeah, there, there are going to be tourists in a country like Brazil anyway. Um, the, the, in, in terms of the, the knock-on effects for ordinary people, there's very few. Um, it's FIFA guards jealously access to the, to the tournament. It's it's done for the benefit of the of FIFA sponsors. Um, you know, I mean, if you want to eat there, you will eat food which is provided by a FIFA commercial partner. It won't be. Elvis and his, uh, uh, you know, and his street stall, and that's that's kind of the nature of it. It's 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 not the economic bonanza that FIFA 
used to suggest it was. And I think the Brazilians are well aware of that. And what the protest movement in, in Brazil, the World Cup has become this, this thing which is supposed to be this, uh, you know, a global festival of humanity. You know, that's the kind of rhetoric that, that Seth Blatter will, will use, the FIFA president. He'll talk about how it's bringing people together. Actually became this symbol for behind closed doors, corruption, smoky room deals, construction companies, getting hundreds of millions of dollars to build stadiums that nobody actually needs. You know, who's, who's benefiting now, from all this? Now, speaking of uh, behind-closed-doors deals, the, uh, the award of the Games to Brazil was relatively uncontroversial. Brazil is a great uh, footballing country. It hadn't been in South America since 1978, so... It, it was, was their was turn, in a way. But, uh, but the, the two next ones in Russia, and particularly in Qatar in 2022, they're highly controversial. Now, what's the problem there? Well, this is a, this is really the. I mean, okay. So we've, what we've got is two authoritarian um, regimes, and we can see all kinds of things. I mean, who knows whether the Russian World Cup will ultimately go ahead? You know, when, when we see what's what's happening at the moment, it's, it's difficult to say. So FIFA have been very quiet about it. Um, Michel Platini at UEFA has said, "Well, sport has nothing to do with politics." That's what he's saying at the moment. But of course, it, we'll we'll wait to see how that situation unfolds. They don't seem to be keen to move it out of there. Um, as for Qatar, there's a lot of <laughs> I mean, the, that, that FIFA could award the World Cup to Qatar is honestly a joke. It, it's, on, it's only a joke. There's no other word for it because there was other countries involved in the bidding in the United States, Japan, Australia, looking to host the World Cup then. Everybody was bidding to host the Summer World Cup. Um, everybody was looking at Qatar and going, well, there's no, no way it can be on there because you know, if you've got daytime temperatures of 50 degrees, you're not going to be able to play football. Um, even if you take aside the fact that you're talking about a tiny country with no history in, in the game, and why else would you, why else would you award a Qatar unless they paid you to do it? Really, is the question that people were asking. Nevertheless, they did. But now it's now they're talking about moving it to winter, um, which you know is moving the goalposts sort of after it's uh, after it's been decided. You know, why would they have been so keen to award it to Qatar? So everybody's looking at that situation and drawing the obvious conclusion, which is what. Well, the obvious conclusions, I mean, of, of the ex, the FIFA executive committee members um, who voted on that, two of them were suspended for corruption before the vote even took place. Um, <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of other... I mean, it's it's impossible even to go into detail uh, because there are so many of the stories surrounding, uh, you know, this. I mean, Jack Warner, the, the long-time sort of power broker in Caribbean football, you know, ended up going down in this scandal, you know, where people are essentially just being, there was video of, of guys getting blocks of $40,000, you know, what I mean? <laughs> blocks of $40,000 cash. The the 10-year-old daughter of of <laughs> of Ricardo Teixeira uh, being transferred $2 million into her, her account. Ricardo Teixeira, who, the former head of, of the Brazilian uh, Football Federation and an infamous and notorious uh, figure in Brazilian football, um, so he's gone out of the picture, but just in a more general way, is there anything that could be done to clean up FIFA or at least to make the process a bit more transparent? Well, there's a lot that could be done, but the problem is that FIFA itself has to, is the only organisation that, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a charity, technically. It's, a, it's an organisation which makes its own rules. It isn't beholden to anyone else. And it also um, imposes sanctions against any member association in which the, uh, say, say, for instance, the, the Irish government decided that 
the FAI was not doing things right and decided to intervene and, and make some reforms, FIFA would suspend Ireland from, from all international competition. You know, we wouldn't be allowed to play anymore. Uh, they, they, they used that sanction to prevent any outside interference in, in what they considered to be their domain. I mean, the question of, of Russia and Qatar, these are the kind of countries now that are, that are getting the World Cup. The, way, the, the, the kind of tournament that the World Cup has become um, the the grandiose expense that's involved, you know, the, it's huge. I mean, how many football stadiums are there in Brazil? I mean, Brazil is a country which is full of football stadiums. There's no need to build 12 effectively new ones. There's no need to spend this much money, but FIFA wants that. And the only type of country increasingly that's left that can afford to stage something like this is a place like Russia or a place like Qatar, where you've got oil money and... Petrodollar uh, oligarchies, essentially. But and, and, they, and, they, and they want what, what FIFA can provide is, is, is eyeballs. That's what nobody argues with. For a month, every four years, the entire world will be watching these football matches coming from this country, which I suppose can be any, any type of propaganda that the host country wishes to attach. That's what they're buying. Now, Tom Hennigan, whatever about the economic impact, hosting a World Cup is generally viewed as being good for a government's fortunes. Is that likely to be true for the Brazilian president in October? It all depends on how the tournament goes. Um, I don't think Brazil um, will make much of a, um, a decision on how it votes in October based on what happens on the pitch. Uh, there's this sort of uh, mistaken cliche in the country that a government will, will perform badly in, in the year when the country doesn't win the World Cup. But in 98, they got knocked out in the final, but the incumbent won um, re-election. But in 2002, they won the World Cup, um, but the incumbent's chosen successor um, failed to get elected. Um, so I don't think what happens on the pitch is important. What happens off is... Um, what the opposition are doing, and they're beginning to have some success against President uh, Dilma Rousseff, is saying that she was always sold as a manager, a competent manager, not a very charismatic um, politician, but a competent manager. But in four years, we're seeing increasing examples of incompetence. Now, some of that is undoubtedly her own incompetence. Most of it is just because the Brazilian public machine is designed to be slow, cumbersome, corrupt and incompetent. And how that plays out in the World Cup, if they manage to get through the month and the problems aren't too bad, um, particularly if it, if it looks good on TV around Brazil and the problems in the cities don't really impact many people who are, let's say, staying at home watching the games with friends, they're enjoying the days off when the games are on, then I think the government will be able to you know, just slap some lipstick on the pig and say it's fine. Um, if, though, the problems do become noticeably bad, if the press start highlighting a lot of the problems in the cities, if the protests are handled badly, if they snowball, this would be all grist to the opposition's mill saying, look, you know, uh, the president, she's not competent, she can't run the country, she couldn't even run this tournament properly. And Brazil had a lot of time to prepare for this. They applied for the World Cup in 2006. They were awarded in 2007. And then they essentially spent five years working out between their builders, who are all the main financiers of their political campaigns, exactly how many new stadiums they would get. FIFA only wanted a maximum of eight stadiums, and they said they only needed uh, seven cities. One city could have two stadiums. Instead, the Brazilians said, no, no, we're going to have 12 cities, 12 stadiums, and they're all going to be brand new. And as Ken said, Brazil is full of stadiums. Now, they might have needed refurbishment and all of that, but the Brazilians said, no, we're going to knock them all down and rebuild them. 
So there was an awful lot of self-serving and decisions made by the political class uh, in the World Cup planning stage. If the tournament then itself is seen to have been shoddily organised, that could rebound on the government who made those decisions in October. Uh, finally, Ken, uh, will it be all right on the night, do you think? Well, that's usually the way because... Um I mean, uh, certainly in South Africa. Now, I have to say that South Africa is a bit different because there, it wasn't as though there was an organized uh, movement uh, against the World Cup. I mean, I think people were generally quite enthusiastic, although there was, there was quite a few people saying, well, do we really need to spend this much money? I mean, there's a lot of problems in the, um, in the country. This is very expensive. But generally, people were actually quite excited about it. They saw it as, as the, the intangible benefits, let's say, outweighed the tangible costs. And that was the feeling in South Africa. And then when they, I mean, for... <laughs> and they got knocked out in the group stage, but there was a there was a few minutes when it looked like they might go through, and they were beating France. And maybe it was worth it just for how excited everyone was in those few minutes. I mean, the London Olympics is a good example because it was obviously very expensive for the city of London. And if you remember, in the weeks and months leading up to it, there were there was a lot of complaining I and mean, a lot of grumbling. This is ridiculous, and how much money? And and also with the arrogance of the Olympic organization, with their zill lanes and special privileges, and people didn't like any of that. But once it actually started going and Great Britain started winning gold medals, everybody just thought, well, this is great. Britain is, of course, comparatively a very wealthy country and they could afford the Olympics. They'd be paying it off for a while in London, but you know, London is, is not a poor city. Um, in Brazil, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe at an earlier stage of economic development, maybe Brazil is a wealthy country, but, it, but it, even more unequal than South Africa, a lot of unfairness there. And when the World Cup has come to be seen as a symbol of that unfairness, then, uh, and you've already got this this existing opposition, which we saw was huge during the Confederations Cup, then uh, I think maybe the ingredients, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the same as London, but that way. Ken Early and Tom Hennigan, thank you. Last week's talks in Geneva between Russia, Ukraine, the United States and the European Union produced an agreement on a number of steps to de-escalate the conflict in the east of Ukraine between those loyal to the government in Kiev and others who want closer ties with Moscow. The one-page accord called on all sides to refrain from violence, provocation and extremism. Armed groups were to lay down their weapons and occupied public spaces and buildings were to be vacated. But in the days since Geneva, the situation on the ground has become more tense, with three people killed in a shooting on Sunday at a pro-Russian checkpoint in the east of Ukraine and Kiev and Moscow each accusing one another of breaking the accord. To discuss the latest developments, I'm joined by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine and here in studio by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie. Dan, can you describe the atmosphere where you are in Donetsk? Uh, the atmosphere is quite peculiar, really. Uh, we have the main um, regional administration building here in Donetsk, a, a, a large 11-storey building in the middle of the city, uh, occupied by... Uh, these protesters, who some of whom want to have uh, greater powers transferred from Kiev to the regions, uh, others want to actually join Russia, um, and the area around that building uh, has the kind of barricades built with, with tires and old pieces of metal and so on, the kind of thing that we saw in Kiev uh, in recent months, but on a much smaller scale. And only a few only a few dozen protesters, really, around there at any one time. Um, they've proclaimed, the people inside that building have proclaimed the area um, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic. But 
they don't really have any say in what goes on in the rest of the city. It's a city of um, about a million people um, and a very large uh, uh, industrial area surrounding the city. And though they have declared this, they don't really have, um, they don't have any real say, as I say, in what goes on in, in the rest of Donetsk. And they don't really seem to have much uh, coordination between the people who are running that building in the main city here and people who have taken over um, local administration buildings in eight or nine other towns and cities around the region. Um, so daily life is going on as normal here, certainly in Donetsk and most of the rest of the region. Um, but at the same time, we have this situation in which uh, there are gunmen in some of these towns regularly patrolling. And somewhere, we think, there are um, Russian units, Russian agents um, who are helping these, uh, these local people seize these administrative buildings at different times. And have you been able to get a sense of the state of, of public opinion in the region? Are the separatists winning the argument or what do people actually want? That's also very, very interesting and quite nuanced. Um, there, is some, there is sympathy for, for these people who have taken the buildings because uh, among a lot of people here in the East, there is great suspicion and some fear of this new government in Kiev. Um, the people out here have been used to their people running Ukraine effectively um, for, for a number of years. President Yanukovych, who fled in, in uh, February, uh, was a local man. He was from just outside Donetsk. Most of the people in government uh, were members of his party, the region's party, which is drawn almost entirely from this part of the country. Now they see that the new government has taken over. It's run by people from central Ukraine and western Ukraine. Um, more um, Ukrainian nationalist feeling among them, Ukrainian speaking rather than Russian speaking. Um, so they are fearful of what comes next. They don't know what's going to happen next. So they do have some sympathy for the people who've taken the buildings. But at the same time, um, there isn't very, we haven't seen great protests on the street in support of this movement. Um, we haven't seen great, great support on the streets for uh, calls to join Russia. Certainly, lots of people here would like powers to be devolved from Kiev to the regions. They would feel much more confident about their future if they had more say in that future. They feel like they're being ignored now by the new government in Kiev. But in terms of active support for the seizure of these buildings, active support for Russian intervention, there really isn't any of that around. On the other side, we're not seeing great shows of support for the Kiev government either. Um, we saw maybe three, 4,000 people gathering in Donetsk last week in support of a unified Ukraine and in support of the new government. But there is, um, there is lots of, in terms of, of political activity, in terms of activity in civil society, it's at a very, very low level in Donetsk and around this region in general. Kiev and Moscow have been trading accusations about breaking the Geneva Accord. Which of them is telling the truth? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> obviously that depends who you ask. Um, the, um, well, you know, the, this deal was done last Thursday night in Geneva. On Friday morning here in Donetsk, in, in this administration building that's been taken by the people who say they are leading this Donetsk People's Republic, they said the deal is already dead. Um, they, the, this deal, the, um, the main elements of this deal call on all armed groups, all illegal armed groups around Ukraine to disarm and to leave the buildings that they've occupied. So obviously that applies in the east to these people who've taken the administrative buildings. But they say we're not going anywhere until the government in Kiev 
leaves its positions and resigns. They say that the, the revolution that ousted President Yanukovych and brought this pro-EU, pro-Western government to power was, was uh, a coup. It was entirely illegal, and they considered the people sitting in power now in Kiev, in the government headquarters, in the presidential headquarters, to be illegal. So they put themselves on the same level as, uh, as the powers in Kiev. And clearly, uh, they were saying here in Donetsk that we will not step down until the government in Kiev steps down. And obviously, the government in Kiev has no intention of leaving. Um, this also applies to the um, ultranationalist groups, right sector, who uh, were a key element in the revolution in ousting Yanukovych. They have a somewhat ambiguous, intense relationship with the new government. Um, they say they don't have any weapons anymore, but certainly out here in the East, they are convinced that right sector is still, um, as they're being told by Russian media, roaming eastern parts of Ukraine, uh, threatening to attack Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. We haven't seen any evidence of this. And the United Nations in a recent report said they didn't see any evidence of widespread discrimination or, or violence against Russian speakers in Ukraine. But this attack that you mentioned uh, a few moments ago in about 100 kilometers or so from Donetsk, took place on Easter Sunday morning. Three local men were killed at a pro-Russian checkpoint. And Russian media and Russian officials and local people immediately blamed this right sector organization. Um, and that is the prevailing view around here. We haven't seen any convincing evidence to prove that. But people are very susceptible to those kind of uh, fears and, and that kind of news and that kind of speculation at the moment. Paul Gillespie, the American Vice President Joe Biden, has been in Kiev this week offering moral support. How much more has the West got to offer than moral support? I think it's a mess. Uh, I, I, it's very unconstructive for a lot of the uh, Western approach. Uh, we'll be talking about NATO uh, presently. But if you listen to what uh, Dan is saying there about attitudes in eastern, uh, southern uh, Ukraine, you see how open this would be to more initiatives uh, to recognize the, the fears and the demands of people there for greater autonomy, uh, for recognition of rights. Um, and this has been, as I see it, uh, very little has been forthcoming from Kiev. And you would imagine that both from Brussels and from Washington, there would be a lot more pressure on that government uh, to actually offer uh, such um, uh, uh, rights uh, and undertakings uh, in order to head off the, the kind of appeal uh, to the extremists that, that Dan is talking about. There seems to be much more scope uh, for constructive action than has actually been taken. The interim president has uh, said that he's open to the idea of a national referendum about devolving some power. Yeah. But uh, but you don't regard that as being a really uh, a genuine offer. Well, it is. You don't see the force, the political force, both of argument and of organisation behind it, or, or a credible initiatives coming, uh, or pressure. Uh, from uh, uh, from the, their international partners on the new Kiev government to, to go and do this. Uh, and if, if in the absence of that, uh, and if you simply restrict the actions to security-type actions via NATO, uh, you, you're really, in a sense, it seems to me, playing into, into Putin's hands. Now, there is a growing support within NATO for moving military assets into the Baltic states, <clears throat> into Poland, and into other eastern frontline NATO states. Now, is this likely to deter Putin or make things worse? I, I think, it, 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 again, it falls, it falls into his, uh, 
into his game plan, uh, and he's well able to um, uh, to exploit this this kind of uh, uh, of move. And I think there is tension uh, between the Americans and the Europeans on this issue, uh, particularly the Germans. Uh, I, I think uh, again, you're seeing in this whole crisis the underestimation of Russia from the European point of view on a longer-term basis, uh, and uh, the uncertainty now that uh, drives the attitudes towards Russia is reflected again in, in, in these these moves in NATO. So I, I, I'm I'm very critical of it. And do you think the West actually has worked out what it is that Vladimir Putin wants in Ukraine? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, there's still that, you know, there's still an important debate going on as to precisely wh- where where that's at. Again, uh, I'm not sure that you need to have a very precise uh, n- notion of the objectives because the fluidity of what again Dan is describing on the ground, I think, reflects a wider uncertainty about uh, where you could get uh, what the West say they want—a non-zero-sum approach—but uh, they haven't the elements of a of a game plan for that. Dan, do you see any prospect of uh, the kind of resolution that uh, that Paul has been talking about, a kind of a federalization of the uh, of the conflict? Well, as you mentioned there, the, the president and the and the interim government they have um, uh, said they are willing to decentralize powers. Um, they they have said they they will look at holding a referendum on these issues. Um, but they are very, very wary of, of what the more radical elements out here call for and what Russia is openly calling for. That is for a, a federal Ukraine with, with um, a great deal of autonomy given to these eastern regions. Because the, the, the government in Kiev now, uh, which is trying to move Ukraine away from Russia and out of Russian influence and towards the European Union and the West, they believe that Russia will only use this to destabilize the country and to make it effectively ungovernable for Kiev. They see in in Kiev, they believe that that Russia's game plan is to make this new, basically to essentially ensure that the country cannot operate normally, that uh, um, a new pro-EU government in Kiev cannot um, effectively turn the country around, um, restore it to some kind of stability, some kind of economic prosperity, and lead it into closer relations with the European Union. So they believe that Putin will do whatever necessary to um, effectively keep Ukraine on the brink of crisis constantly. So they're constantly dealing with a series of crises. And if they give too much power to the eastern regions, that will simply play into Putin's hands and allow him, as um, the uh, Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk recently said, to effectively create a situation in which you might not just have one Yanukovych in Kiev, but you have many Yanukovyches all over eastern Ukraine, um, constantly destabilizing the situation and really acting in Russia's interests rather than in Ukraine's interests. Daniel McLaughlin in Donetsk and eastern Ukraine, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Scotland votes on independence on September the 18th in a referendum with profound implications, not just for Scotland, but for the United Kingdom, the European Union and for Ireland. The polls still point to a no vote in September, but the gap between the two sides is narrowing, and an ICM poll in Scotland on Sunday this week put the no side just three points ahead, with 42% compared to the yes side's 39%. Warnings by the Governor of the Bank of England and the President of the European Commission about the dire consequences for Scotland of voting for independence have done nothing to halt the momentum of the yes campaign. 
Meanwhile, the no side, represented by a cross-party group called Better Together, appears divided and uncertain about how to fight the referendum. So is Scotland getting ready to leave the Union? I'm joined from Edinburgh by journalist Alex Massey, who writes for The Spectator, and by Paul Gillespie, who's still here with me in studio. Alex, why is the momentum on the yes side? The simple answer to that, I think, is that the yes side has a much simpler story to tell. Uh, If you were uh, a campaign strategist parachuted in uh, from overseas and given the choice of which of these two campaigns you would want to to sell to a a skeptical electorate and so on, I think you would choose the yes side. Uh, It offers um, a vision of a better future, uh, of starting again, starting afresh, if you like, um, a a new tomorrow, a new beginning. And that is something that uh, is, is obviously founded on uh, a very optimistic take on Scotland's future, but it's uh, a future based upon the principle that, of course, Scotland can be independent and can flourish. Look at all these other countries in Europe, uh, many of them small countries, that have no difficulty in managing their own affairs. Uh, Why shouldn't the decisions that affect Scotland be taken in Scotland to the fullest extent that is possible in this day and age? Um, All of these are, are are good questions, and they're questions to which the unionist uh, campaign has yet to find very good answers. Um, the unionist campaign uh, doesn't have, um, in, in uh, the terms favoured by political consultants, uh, a narrative. Um, they haven't got a story to tell. And so we've had uh, warning after warning um, uh, that uh, everything from pensions to the currency to membership of the European Union, even to you know uh, the the fate of um, the availability of which uh, television programmes will be available in Scotland or a mobile phone reception or uh, all of these things will somehow be worse uh, or that, or at the very least uncertain after independence. Um, and as a result of that, it's been a sort of uh, desperately negative campaign from from the pro-union side. And after a while, I think people get fed up of that. They get fed up being sort of told that everything will be hopeless. Uh, and it somehow, in the end, it, um, too much of this insults people's intelligence a little. Um, what is it that uh, would leave Scotland uniquely ill-placed to manage as an independent country? And you look at, uh, I mean, some of these questions, of course, are, are, are legitimate ones in terms of um, a currency or the EU. But look, these things can be worked out. Every other country has managed to work these things out. Uh, why, why would Scotland be uniquely ill-placed to do so? Um, and so uh, they've, they've not, the, the union campaign hasn't really managed to, to agree on what it wants to say. Is one of the reasons for that that, they've, uh, that the pro-union parties, the Conservatives, Labour and the Liberal, Liberal Democrats, have effectively subcontracted this campaign to this group better together? and that there are kind of structural difficulties within that. Yes, there are. Uh, I mean, this is a very uneasy alliance of convenience. Um, it could be summarized as Tory money uh, for Labour men. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the Tories, of course, are, are reasonably unpopular in Scotland. I mean, only about 15% of voters um, endorse the, the Conservatives. Um, one of the Yes campaign's um, very effective lines is to say, you know, Scotland never votes for Conservative governments. Uh, and yet, you know, frequently endures conservative governments. You know, one reason to vote for independence is to put an end to that situation. Uh, and again, that, that is intuitively quite a strong and powerful argument. Um, 
And so Labour and, and the Tories, uh, who dislike one another intensely, of course, uh, are in this, as I say, alliance of convenience. And Jim Murphy, the former Secretary of State of Scotland, uh, you know, won't appear on a platform with Conservatives. Uh, Gordon Brown, who uh, made his first uh, intervention this week uh, with a speech on, on pensions, uh, uh, is also reluctant to appear under the Better Together cam- uh, Better Together banner for for fear of its association with the Conservatives, um, and and so uh, you know the, there is this um, as you as you rightly suggest a structural problem within uh, Better Together, but I think it's 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 deeper than than just Tory uh, Labour um, disagreements. Uh, it, it is that they haven't yet found uh, a language or a way of talking about what Britain can do in the future. Paul, uh, it's all very well and good to, to look at the past and a shared history and culture and so on. Uh, but much of that would, of course, endure after independence too. I mean, we, we have it with the Irish example. The Republic of Ireland and Scotland obviously would be leaving the UK in very different circumstances and for very different reasons. But um, nobody would say that uh, the Republic of Ireland is a foreign country in the way that, say, Germany or Poland or Finland is a foreign country. Country. I mean, you know, the, the the Irish people and the English people and the Scottish people still spring from a very uh, have a vast shared cultural and historical um, hinterland, if you like, that endures despite um, political disagreements and the fact that uh, uh, the Republic is, of course, its own sovereign state these days. So, uh, again, the, the notion of, of Scotland cutting itself off from the rest of the UK after independence is actually quite a difficult one to to sell or persuade people on because people think, well, would that really be the case? Um, uh, and of course, in one sense, you know, uh, the ties that bind Scotland um, to the rest of the UK would be uh, loosened and, and uh, uh, over, over time, perhaps, and some of them doubtless would be cut, but, but it wouldn't ever become a completely strange or foreign land. And so these sort of dark unionist warnings of endless winter and a land um, uh, poisoned with by pestilence and so on, you know, just don't ring true. Um, Paul, people, yes. people feel that, uh, that that this is somehow insulting them as well. Uh, Paul, one of the curiosities of the campaign is the position of the Conservative Party, some of whose MPs appear to have got entangled inside the logic of their own position on the European Union. What's the intellectual difficulty that they have there? Yeah, I think Alex's point about the... Uh, the narrative not being convincing from the unionist side is extraordinarily interesting. Um, uh, it's, it seems to me that it's not only that the Scottish case for independence is simpler, but it's actually it's more substantive in many ways, as he describes. Uh, the fact that the, uh, the alternative unionist case is not as substantive and as immediately convincing uh, re- registers a colossal historical change. And you see this coming through in the Conservative, um, uh, certain, the wing, that wing of the Conservative Party, who no longer take unionism, you know, as a, as a foreground of their political philosophy, but are very concerned about uh, in- things English, things uh, English vis-a-vis the European Union. There's a, a, a current of English nationalism, as we know. But that comes through into uh, into certain calculations in, in that wing of the Conservatives that were that were that without Scotland, of course, they'd have a a, a benefit politically within England itself. And uh, one way or another, it, it, even if Scotland stays uh, in the UK uh, this time around, uh, there's going to be a move 
to get English votes for English legislation uh, in the context of, say, a deeper devolution if the Scots vote no. So that logic is coming through and it's affecting uh, that wing of the Conservative Party now, but it's affecting other dimensions of, of the English political culture as well. Is it not the case also that the argument in favour of Scotland remaining in the Euro- within the United Kingdom is very similar to the argument for Britain to remain inside the European yes, Union? Yes, uncannily so. Or in fact, remark- again, remarkably so. Uh, and some, some of the uh, Eurosceptics who take the issue of Europe much more seriously than the issue of Scotland uh, see that link and, and, and uh, uh, want to disentangle themselves from it. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, another factor, of course, is if, 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 if Scotland were to become independent, I think the likelihood of a, uh, a vote in the uh, remaining UK against uh, the EU when it comes to a referendum, assuming it does, uh, would, be, would be more likely to be a, a vote to pull out. Uh, Alex, do you rec- recognise that characterisation of the difficulties within the Conservative Party? Yes, I do. I mean, you know, David Cameron is a unionist to his bootstraps, not because he's ever really thought deeply about the union, um, but because he is, he is a Tory. Um, the union has value because it is an institution um, and, and it has been around for a long time and it derives its value from its antiquity. And, uh, and and institutions, you know, uh, you know that, that that's a sort of classical Tory way of, of of looking at these things. But one of the curiosities about um, about this debate is that in in many instances, it's the Scottish nationalists who have thought about unionism rather more deeply uh, than many unionists have. Um, uh, and that that is something that we see also, I think, in um, in some of the things that Paul was talking about in terms of the European question, you know, uh, English conservatives, and I'm always struck by this, are vastly more obsessed with the prospect of a possible, a hypothetical referendum on uh, EU membership in 2017 than they are with the referendum that is taking place um, in September of this year, after which, you know, Britain as we know it may no longer exist. Um, Because, uh, you know, Scotland isn't just British at present. Um, In many ways, Scotland is Britain. That is that uh, if if Britain or the United Kingdom could survive just about the departure of 26 of the 32 Irish counties, um, it cannot survive the departure of Scotland. Um, uh, Scotland is, uh, without Scotland, there is no Britain. There is England plus uh, the Principality of Wales and half a dozen Ulster counties. Uh, England obviously can't leave Britain, but uh, but Scotland can. And, and with that, it, um, it, it would in some ways destroy Britain itself and and leave the English, I think, with um, a, a, a crisis for which they are ill-prepared um, psychologically, um, intellectually. I think that they would they would find their sense of themselves changed in ways that they do not yet appreciate. Paul, uh, here in in Dublin, the Irish government for uh, the first time publicly has actually, uh, in a risk report, has acknowledged that Scottish independence represents a risk for uh, for this state. What exactly uh, is the risk that the government sees? Well, I think, again, it's the risk, uh, the totality 
of the risks that Alex has been talking about there, uh, that's a very dramatic statement to say that without Scotland, Britain would <laughs> would not exist. And I, I agree. Uh, I, I think the uh, residual uh, UK uh, with Wales and Northern Ireland is, is not credible. Uh, and I, I fully agree that the, uh, the dynamics uh, of psychological and politically of that are, 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 are simply un, not realised. Now, that is a, ver- a risk from the point of view of Ireland's relationship uh, with, with the UK existing relationship, which is constitutional as well as political, uh, with the North of Ireland as a trading partner, uh, as a partner within the European Union. Uh, so it's the unsettled nature of this UK, uh, uh, contrasted with the remarkably uh, more settled nature of the uh, of the Irish uh, setting. That is that is a risk. And so, just as it, as people are coming used to a power sharing arrangement in the north of Ireland, suddenly uh, these kind of changes uh, put that at risk. Uh, Alex, if Scotland does vote for independence, what are the consequences for David Cameron? Uh, I think it would be extremely difficult for Cameron to make it as far as the next UK general election, uh, which is in in May next year. I cannot see how he could credibly remain in office. Uh, It is true that, of course, he has distanced himself from the campaign, and I think that is another uh, weakness for the unionist cause, incidentally. Uh, You know, he has no wish to... He's acutely aware that Alex Salmond would love to make it a personal contest between Alex Salmond and David Cameron, and for that reason, Cameron is disinclined to get too involved. But there again, you know, if the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom will not roll his sleeves up uh, and get involved in the campaign to preserve the United Kingdom, doesn't that say something rather telling about the weakness of the case of the United Kingdom? At least that is certainly how nationalists would argue it. Uh, For Cameron, I, I cannot see how he could, you know... Cameron has put himself in the position whereby he, if there is a no vote, he risks receiving very little credit for it. Um, but if there is a yes vote, he will, regardless of having been, uh, of having played a major part in the campaign or not, uh, receive much of the blame for it. Um, I think he would be wounded and a lame duck um, prime minister. And it's not the sort of thing that, uh, I, I mean, technically, of course, he could um, continue. Uh, in, in, in office, but but it is hard to see how he could do so as a credible force. Uh, I think uh, uh, I think he would have to resign, yes. Finally. Uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, the only thing anyone remembers about Lord North is that he was prime minister when the American colonies were lost in the 18, in, in the 18th century. Now, Scotland, of course, is not a colony, um, but David Cameron has surely no desire to be remembered as a 21st century Lord North. Uh, finally, Alex, from where we stand now, what is the most likely outcome? <laughs> yeah. Um, the most likely outcome is still a narrow no vote. But the days when unionists could, uh, could dream of a 65, 35 or even better result for the, union, for the unionist cause are, are long gone. I mean, I think that, you know, 53, 47, uh, 52, 48, something like that is, is quite possible. Um, and no one will, will be... People might be shocked, but not surprised if there is a yes vote, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, we would all then wake up wondering just what we've done. Alex Massey in Edinburgh and Paul Gillespie here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>